His one call, he had heard the name of Jack Hiles. And so he made the phone call from Belize to the office of Jack Hiles in Indiana. And he said, I'm on a mission work. I'm in Belize and they've arrested me and I need help getting out of here. And uh, Dr. Howells was influential in helping getting him back to the state. He settled down a little bit. He got a little tempered, you know. He got a little maturity. He found out uh, a little bit on education of how to do it. And uh, his name was Kevin Wynn. And he determined that God had called him to Mexico. And uh, so he and his wife went to Mexico. We supported them for a number of years. In fact, I remember special offerings we... Uh, over, over the years, two times we bought them washers and dryers. They had, uh, they had eight kids, and uh, they, they, uh, we supported them for about 12 years. You said, well, why don't we support them now? They never came home. They never came home to report to Church of State on the field, and, and uh, we, they were good occasionally about sending the letters in, but there was just not the accountability that was there. And Kevin kept sending these massive numbers and uh, he'd say, oh, we, you know, we're having 5,000 in church. And people were wondering, is he, is he counting like this? How's he counting? And we had wondered and wondered and wondered. And I talked to a, a pastor on Monday that had been in Mexico City where he is. Now he is, from what I understand from this pastor, he is now basically on Mexican currency uh, and not on American dollars now. And uh, they have continued to purchase warehouses in Mexico City, which is the fastest growing city in all of the world. And uh, right now, their church attendance, they are running 15,000 in church. Verified 15,000. They, they have a number of bus routes. They use city buses for bus routes. Their baptistry in this warehouse that they're in they have these outside swimming pools that are pretty popular right now, sort of plastic sides on them, poly kind of sides, and they have four of those in front of their church, and that's their baptistries. And they will have as much as four men in each baptistry baptizing, and they have well over 150 churches established out of that one church. I tell you that tonight to say this. Even when we no longer support a missionary, it's a privilege to have supported him a while and got in on the groundwork, and then God does the rest. And we're glad for that. I got a text this afternoon about 5.30, 6 o'clock from David Gates, our missionary in Egypt, and uh, they have just ordained their first Egyptian man. And he is thrilled at God giving them men. And so continue to be and prayer for these. If you would do encourage you to be in prayer for, for the chemist and for his family. Uh, you know, he's been working in Maryland, spending a lot of time there. God, over the last few weeks, has made it very clear that that's not uh, his place for him. And they, he has stepped out by faith. He resigned his job and position there uh, this week. And uh, so the search begins. And I think God will honor that. And uh, so I want you to pray for them as, uh, as he is looking. And I pray that God will bring. And he doesn't need much. He said four or five hundred thousand dollars a year would uh, would be 
would be fine with him. I would just pray the Lord would give him exactly. You know, you want people to, to succeed. You want a good salary. But listen to this. I want people to have a salary that keeps them depending on the Lord too. When we become independent of him, we get in trouble. Ephesians chapter 1 tonight. Tonight's going to be a lot of introduction. Now, we may or we may not get very far in the bulletin tonight. But for the next, uh, I'm not even going to say how long. But until we finish it, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. And we're going to go pretty much verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph. And tonight we're just looking at two verses. And I want to sort of set the stage with it. Several years ago, there was an elderly couple who were found dead in their home. And when the autopsy was done, because they were suspicious deaths, the coroner said these people died of malnutrition. And the, the interesting part of the story is this. When the officials went into the home and found the bodies and were doing what was necessary there and then trying to find family, they found four paper bags in the apartment where these people were. Each paper bag had $10,000 inside the paper bag. That's $40,000. But in essence, they starved to death. Now, I could ask you the question, how foolish is it to die of malnutrition when there in the room in which you're living, you've got $40,000 in cash? A lady by the name of Hetty Green, I've talked to you about her before, you may have read about her. She is known to be America's greatest miser. And uh, she, <laughs> there's a lot of things that she did when, they, when she died they found out that she had $100 million. Now, let me tell you what led to her death. Her son actually lost his leg. They had to amputate it because he got ill, and she couldn't find a free clinic to take him to. When, they, when she died, she died from what I understand something in the blood pressure heart attack field. And she had just been in a huge argument over milk or skim milk and the price. Now listen, I watch the price of milk. Maybe not as much now because I don't have three teenage boys in the house. When we had the boys and they were older, I felt like I needed to buy a cow rather than a gallon of milk. But I want to tell you, if I've got $100 million, I, I'm not going to fret over $249 for a gallon or $219 for a gallon. You say, preacher, why are you telling us this these days? Both of these stories are this. People who had. They had. They had all that was needed to take care of them in a wonderful way but they didn't use what they had. Now, as we get into the book of Ephesians, we're going to find that the people of Ephesus were the same way. Now, I'm not talking about millions of dollars or ten thousands of dollars, but these people were in Christ. And being in Christ, the Bible tells us that we're heirs and we're joint heirs. And the Bible tells us all the things that we possess because we're children of God. Now, the 
Paul, as he's writing to the people of Ephesus, as it develops over these next months or weeks, however long God leads us here, we're going to find a church in a city that has all of the blessings of God, but they don't use them or they don't realize what they have. Now let's read, if we may please, these first two verses. And then have a pen ready. Your bulletin tonight doesn't have all, a lot of the, the uh, introduction and, and um, historical things to it. But we'll get as far as we can this evening. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and that's important. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. He didn't choose to do this. But it was God's will for him to do this. And then it's an address to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the book of Ephesians was written to people just like those two stories that I just told you about. We think that Ephesians was written between 61 and 63 AD. The city was a very important city. It was uh, called, actually called the Queen City of Asia. It was a city that was great with its finance, a very wealthy city. It was a city of religion. In fact, the, the uh, center of worship for Diana was there, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And then uh, the people of the city were known to be wealthy. The city itself was the capital city. Acts chapter 16 and verse 6, Paul uh, was about to commence on his second missionary journey, and his heart's desire is to go to Ephesus. Now, Paul did not start the church of Ephesus. We think that it was started probably through Aquila and Priscilla, and I'll give you scripture a little bit later on to sort of back that up. Paul is getting ready to leave on the second missionary journey, and in his heart, he wants to go to Ephesus. But you remember in Acts chapter 16 and verse number 6, that's the verse of Scripture that said the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go. And so Paul went a different direction. And uh, then we believe that Aquila and Priscilla, Acts chapter 18, verse 18 and 19, they went there, started the church, and it's a fledgling church. And Paul goes on all of his second missionary journey, and toward the end of the journey, then he goes to Ephesus, and the Bible tells us that he stayed there a long while because it was at the end of the journey. And we believe that he stayed for three years preaching the gospel and helping the fledgling church. Now who after Paul? After Paul leaves, Timothy comes into that place. He follows Paul as the preaching elder or the pastor of the church. First Timothy in chapter number 1 verse number 20 talks about some things that had happened in the church. In First Timothy chapter 1, you remember Paul the old man is trying to encourage Timothy, the young man. And he begins to talk about a lot of struggles and things that are happening that are really discouraging Timothy. We're not, we're not told what all the problem was with Timothy, but we do know that in chapter 1 and verse 20, it talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander and the false teachings and how that was hurting the church, the foolish arguments the false doctrine, the legalism, all those things that came along with that. Now, there's a lot of people that believe, these first two verses that we're looking at tonight, there's a lot of people that believe that this is a circular letter. In other words, it didn't just go to one place, and I'm going to share with you why. 
Now, notice if you would who this is addressed to. It does say in verse number one, to the city of Ephesus. And then it says, and to the saints. Now, when it comes down to the saints part, a little bit later we'll get into That includes us. Okay, that includes us. There were, a number of years ago, through archaeological research and dig, there was a number of writings found that were word-for-word identical to the book of Ephesians, except for the words in verse number one to the church of Ephesus. Now, what we think happened is that it became a circular letter. In other words, Ephesus got it, and it did them such good to hear these things from Paul that they took it and they began to pass it around to other people because the copies of this, which there are a large number of them, the copies of it were found in such diverse places. So we believe that this became later a circular letter. Now notice verse 1 says, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Ephesians was written to teach us about who we are in Christ Jesus. Now, chapter 1 through chapter 3 are, do, are doctrinal chapters. It tells us what we have in Christ. It talks about the riches that we have in Christ. Chapter 4 through chapter 6 are not doctrinal. They're practical. And that's just what we do with what we have. So the first three chapters instruct us and tell us what we have in Christ. And once he's finished with that, in the last three chapters, he comes back in a very practical way and says, here, this is how you use what you have in Christ. Now, I want us to look, and you have this on your, uh, on your bulletin and outline sheet there tonight. When we're looking about at this book, this book does talk about riches. Notice the riches of his grace, chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. According to the riches of his grace, in chapter 3, verse 8, unto me who am less than the least of all saints. I like how Paul, listen, Paul never got, he never got an inflated ego. Notice again what he says in that verse. Unto me who am less than the least of all the saints. Remember in another passage of scripture where he tells us who he is? The chiefest of saints. Or sinner, the chiefest of sinners. Paul never got an inflated ego of who he was. The verse continues on. uh, uh, At least of all the saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse uh, 16 of chapter 3, the riches of his glory, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. So it talks a lot about riches. Then notice the second thing that it talks about. It talks about fullness. Verse 16 again. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened. Chapter 4 and verse 13. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse 18. To be filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's talking about a fullness. He's talking about riches. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit. Now the riches and the fullness arise in, and you have a list of areas that they arise in. In his grace, in his peace, in his will, his pleasure, in his glory, in his calling, in his power, his love, his workmanship, his spirit. 
his offering and sacrifice, and his armor. All of these things, these riches and the fullness that he speaks of arise from these things which are God. Now, Ephesians mentions riches five times. It mentions grace 12 times, glory eight times, fullness six times, and, the, and this phrase, in Christ or in him 12 times. The idea of in or with or through. All three of those. In Christ, with Christ, through Christ. All three of those talk to us tonight and to the church of Ephesus. They talk to us about our position in Christ. So again, what we're looking at, we saw those two earthly illustrations of those people who had what they needed, but they didn't use what they had. Now, this book is about the overwhelming, infinite wealth that we have in the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, And if children then heirs, join heirs with God, or heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, we shall also be glorified with Him. Peter says it this way, To an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and fadeth not away. I was in Mechanicsville the other day, and I was behind this vehicle, and I was reading the glass on the back of this truck. It said, in memory of, and then it had a name written across it. And then it had a birth year and a death year. And what I figured out just sitting there and observing this piece of glass in this truck was that somebody received an inheritance. And with the inheritance, they bought this vehicle. And I, 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 they probably bought it as a new vehicle. But let me tell you this, it was no longer new. The paint didn't look new. The wheels didn't look new. You could tell, I don't know how many miles it had on it, but it had a lot of miles on it. What do you do? What do you do with an inheritance? Now, there will come a day when that vehicle that I was sitting behind ceases to run. And somebody's going to find out that it costs more to fix it than the vehicle is worth. And they are going to have to make a decision of what to do with it. It became an inheritance that was corruptible. And notice what Peter says about ours. To our inheritance, since we're heirs of Christ, and our inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, and it fadeth not away, and it's reserved for us in heaven. Now, Ephesians is also a book about mystery. Now, a mystery to a truth previously hidden but now revealed. I don't know if you watch mysteries or like mysteries or, or whatever. Um, to each his own on those things. But a mystery is something that at the beginning you don't get. You don't understand it. I think, I think in Ephesians we see three primary places of the mysteries of God. And listen, there are some mysteries of God. There's some things, some of God's actions I don't understand. 
Some of God's actions. Let me give you these three things tonight, these three mysteries. First, there are mysteries that no one but God has ever understood or will ever understand. Some things will just always be beyond man. That's a mystery of God. The second type of mystery are those things that are hidden from most people but revealed to a select group. And let me give you a very, uh, just a, a very large illustration of that. I say to you tonight, I can't imagine living in this world without the presence of Jesus Christ. I say that I can't. I can't fathom living in all the confusion and the uncertainty and all the wrath and all the things that are happening and not having Christ. But an unsaved man doesn't understand that. You stand before an unsaved person and you talk about a peace that only Christ can give. You talk about grace and mercy. An unsaved man doesn't know anything about that. It's a mystery to him. If I were to say to an unsaved person, I can't imagine being alive today without Jesus Christ. They don't understand that. It's a mystery to them. But not to me. Some mysteries of God will remain mysteries forever. and Man will never know. Some mysteries of God, he reveals to a select group of people. And there's a third kind. And those are mysteries that revolve around the truth that has been hidden for a time and then revealed to the people of God. Now, that kind of mystery in Ephesians is spoken of six times. Chapter 1 and verse 9, chapter 3 and verse 3, 3 and verse 4, 3 and verse 9, and chapter 5 and verse 32, and chapter 6 and verse 19. And so there are six times that though that type of mystery is spoken of. Now, the mystery Paul speaks of in chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 becomes the mystery of the church. Now, the ancient Jews had been looking for a Messiah, but we've said it so many times, they did not understand who they were looking for. They were looking for a political leader. They were looking for a military power, someone who was going to come in with sword and voice, and they were looking for the wrong thing. They weren't looking for the right Messiah. In John chapter 1, verse 11, the Messiah came and walked right by them, and they didn't know it. And then Jesus began his outward earthly ministry, and not only did they not know it, now they reject him. And what the Jews failed to see, I say this tonight, no one ever imagined that there would be an earth and people for 2,000 years. They, they didn't think a thing about you and I. They were thinking about that moment of their life. Now, in the Old Testament, God's people were known by many metaphors. They were known as a vine in the Old Testament in Isaiah, as a bride in the book of Hosea, as a flock in the book of Isaiah chapter 40, and as a kingdom in the book of Exodus. Now, in the New Testament, the same metaphors are used, but there's another one added to the church, and that's the mystery of the body of Christ. 
Now, I want us for a few moments, and I can tell this is going to be longer. Now, I didn't say we're going to stay longer, but we're not going to get all the way through this tonight. I want us to consider the name. Anybody know tonight what the name Paul really means? Little. That's the definition of his name. Now, what was his original name? And you should get that. Saul. Saul was well-educated. And the school teachers, we talked about this on that sheet tonight. He was well-educated by Gamaliel. He was a rabbi, a member of the Sanhedrin, prominent Jewish leader. All of those things. He hated the followers of Christ. In fact, when he was on the road to Damascus at the moment of his salvation, he held, whether it was in his hand or a satchel bag or something, he had legal paperwork to persecute the Christians. That's who's penning this book. So let's look tonight, number one, in the word about authority. Paul reveals a dual source of his authority. He's going to write this letter... He writes as one who must be heard. And then he writes as one who has been sent to declare truth. So I must be heard and I must be heard because I bring to you truth. So Paul reveals a dual source of his authority. Imagine when Paul would begin to write the church. Okay, then we're looking at the church of Ephesus here. Do you remember that Paul had, he had a past he had to get over I would like to have been a fly on the wall. I shouldn't say that because I told you the other night I don't want to get anywhere near reincarnation. I'd like to have seen the look on the disciples' face when Paul or Saul was brought into their presence. Do you think they trusted him? No. This is just another ploy. This is just another means. This is just another tool that he's using to get inside. So Paul had a reputation he had to overcome. Now he's writing to the church of Ephesus and he has to reveal the authority. An ambassador who speaks on the behalf of the President of the United States and our nation, he has to reveal his authority. So Paul gives the authority. He writes as one who must be heard and he writes as one who sends truth. Paul identifies himself, first of all, look at this, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle. The word apostle comes from the word apostolos, which means a sent one. Now, let, let, hang on to your seat here. Let me tell you something. I don't care who puts it on their church brochure or their marquee or they claim it by name. There are no apostles today. There are no apostles today. There have only been in world history 14 men. Whoever met what was needed to be an apostle. You had the 12 disciples. And then Judas was taken away from that. Matthias was added into that. So that made 13. And the apostle Paul. That's the only 14. So we're not going to be putting on our tracks Gordon Young, apostle. There are no apostles today. Anybody who calls themselves that doesn't understand the Scripture. Now, Paul has not chosen this path for himself. He writes to them and he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And when he does that, he says, 
by the will of God. I'm not choosing to do this. But God had placed his hand on Paul and called him for a very special place of service. It's amazing to me to think that in our New Testament, 14 books were written by the Apostle Paul. And the crazy part to me is the majority of them are written from prison. The truth is, I believe this to be true, okay? I'll come over here because this may be a personal thought. It's on the line. God knew Paul. And he knew Paul's heart. And the only way to get him sitting still, and the only way that Paul would ever sit to write out the inspired scripture that we have today, is for him to be incarcerated. To be in a captive place. Why do you say that preacher? I say that because. Paul actually said this. I would wish myself a curse. For the salvation of people. When Paul mentions the apostle. He is stating his divine authority. An apostle of Jesus Christ. By the will of God. So that's a word about his authority. Let's look about a word about the addressees. Paul issues a dual designation concerning the recipients of his letter. There's two groups that he mentions. Number one, saints. And number two, it says the faithful in Christ. Now, let's look at saints. It's amazing who the world today thinks are saints. You use the word saint, and a lot of people think of a little statue of somebody. And here's, there's, there's, two, there's two very vast differences in saints. The world puts the name saint on a person because of what they do. Because of their actions. The Bible puts the word saint on a person because of what Christ did. We become saints at salvation. We do not become saints because we perform miracles or we do some works. So there's a vast difference and Paul addresses them to the saints, to those who know Christ because remember what he's doing? He's showing them what they have in Christ. He's writing to the church. So he says saints. Saint means a most holy thing. It's referring to something that's set apart for specific use. That's us. Christ has set us apart for a specific use. But then he also with this says to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now saints describes our standing before the Lord. But faithful describes our activities in the world. To the saints. And to the faithful that are in Christ Jesus, those are active in the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 is that passage of Scripture that talks to us about being new. Old things passing away and all things becoming new. And those that know the Lord are His holy saints. 
So the, Paul talks about a word of authority. He talks about a, word, a little bit about those to whom he's addressing. And then look at this word of acknowledgement tonight. He offers a word of full acknowledgement or greeting to the recipients. How do you greet someone? Notice how Paul greets these people. And he says, grace to you. Now, what does grace mean? Goodwill. It means loving kindness. It means favor. Now, we, we don't typically, when we meet each other, and when we greet each other, when we come into the foyer, the vestibule out here, we don't usually say grace to you. We usually say something like, how are you? And we don't slow down long enough to hear the answer. How are you doing? Let me ask you this. Let's watch what we say when we do greet one another. How are you doing? And you know we don't listen. We didn't want to know the answer. Paul gives a greeting here. And as he greets them, he says, grace to you. God's favor to you. Cheros is the word that is used here. He's saying, basically what Paul is saying is, I want God's best for you as he greets them. Grace to you. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Grace to you. Oh, God's favor. I want, I want God's best for you. And then Paul gives another part of that. It's dual, remember? One, he talks about grace. And then second, look at this. Paul says peace. And because of the grace of God, we can have peace. You can't have peace without grace. They're inseparable. Let me say this, and I try, I'm trying not to make overmake services political, but I can tell you tonight, our world is not going to see any peace as long as we're walking away from God. Because grace and peace are inseparable. And unless we learn to live in the grace of God, the favor of God, he's already said, he didn't say, the world's peace give I unto you. He said, peace I give you, my peace give I unto you. Again, I want to emphasize the two are inseparable. Where there's grace, there's peace. Where there's peace, there's grace, the favor of God. A word of authority, a word to the dress, a word of acknowledgement. And then we'll have to stop with this. And there's a word uh, about the agent. Paul's calling the apostolic authority, the sainthood, the faithfulness, the grace, and the peace. All of these things that he's looking at, he's saying, are coming through the agent of a relationship with God. You won't find any of this. And he's going to be three chapters doctrine, three chapters practical, and he's saying here, outside of God, outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, the authority, the sainthood, the faithfulness, the grace, and the peace will not exist. Now, when we trust Christ as Savior, all the riches of God become ours. They become ours. So what Paul is trying his best to do as he's starting this writing is to get them to see. And I'm going to go back to that original Hattie Green. 
You have a hundred million dollars. Now, even with a hundred million dollars, I think I would be tight. You have a hundred million dollars. Why have a stroke over the cost of milk? Look at what you have. Use what you have to make your life enjoyable. All of this, Paul's saying to the church in Ephesus, all of this that you have because you're in Christ, you have it, but you're miserable. You have it, but you're malnourished. You have it, but you're angry. You have it, but you're a miser. You have all of this that God has given you to use. You have it, but you don't use it. That's a lot of stuff in two verses. We're going to slowly work our way through this book of Ephesians. It is a very full book. So that we can be doctrinally sound. And that we can live practically and responsibly with all that we have. In Christ is what Paul calls it. All that we have in Christ. Let's pray together tonight. Father, help us please. This is your word.